0: Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Beautiful Sunday morning here in San Diego. Okay, we are going to jump right in. We're in Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to cover a ton of ground. So buckle up, pay close attention. I'm going to talk really fast. We're going to work our way through a ton of material. And I want to warn you, Jesus, through the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly this morning, is definitely going to get into our business in very uncomfortable ways. He's gonna be addressing our emotional dispositions, judgmentalism, and judgment. He's gonna deal with our anger issues, forgiveness and reconciliation, our sexual ethics, both outwardly and inwardly in our minds and our imaginations. He's gonna set some crazy standards for adultery, divorce, truth-telling, and then to top it all off, he kinda salts the whole section with the fires of hell. And so it's just another fun morning at Park Hill. Let's read our passage, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 37, and we will get to work. Jesus, teaching us, said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, beginning in verse 21, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oaths, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. All right. Easy enough, right? Okay, couple of, a couple of few opening thoughts here to answer why we're tackling so much material in a 45-minute sermon and just try to set the stage for us. First of all, we're reading through the entire Bible as a church this year, and we want you to understand that Matthew the author has a teaching agenda, and his agenda includes the entirety of the whole book, the whole gospel. And so we as a teaching team, we intentionally decided to try not to bog down too much in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to slow down a little bit, but we don't want to slow down too much so as to lose the big picture of Matthew. Second, the things that Jesus addresses here this morning, they're going to come up again and again in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. So we'll end up deep diving some of the details that we kind of gloss over this morning. Things like forgiveness and reconciliation, uh, the topic of hell and judgment. We will deep dive those as we go along. We're going to talk about divorce specifically when we get to Matthew chapter 19. So this morning is an introduction to repeated themes that come up over and over. And then finally, I think this is very important. If you're here invited by a friend, dragged here by a friend, bribed to get here by a friend, you're interested in Jesus, you have no exposure to the Bible, this is a fantastic place for you to be. This is a great place for you to be. I remember what it was like for me 20 years ago walking into a church for the first time in my life and it changed everything about me forever. So you are welcome here, but I want to give you a disclaimer. Jesus' teachings are jarring but they are also absolutely tender. I want you to understand that Jesus' teachings, they are disorienting and they can be confusing, but they are brilliantly deliberate, every word he spoke. And Jesus, sometimes his teachings in our modern ears, they can sound a bit weird, but they are full of gentle wisdom. And we all recognize that the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, they tend to offend almost every single one of our currently held cultural values and received truths. And so I want to exhort you, if you're new to the Bible, new to church, please, please stay with us through the entire Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is a master teacher, And he takes time to think upon and to digest him. Fight that urge when you're offended by him to just immediately bail out and be done with all of this. Watch his life. And what you may discover by the end of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus is everything that you've ever longed for and needed. Are we cool with all that? We got all that in place? Okay, let's go. Here we go. Let's start with a little poetry. Poet Ellen Blass. She says, there's a part of every living thing that wants to become itself. The tadpole into the frog, the chrysalis into the butterfly, a damaged human being into a whole one. That is spirituality. Leadership coach Janet Hamburg, in the same vein of thinking, she wrote, a whole subculture of people exists today for whom the quest for self-actualization and wholeness provides their reason for living. Through counseling, education, psychology, psychic awareness, visualization, relaxation, philosophy, fitness, nutrition, and hard work, they strive for new levels of consciousness and ultimately transcendence. Now I would say that I agree with those statements. I think those statements are relatively true. We are all as human beings pursuing some sense of wholeness. We're pursuing optimal performance in our lives or perfection and that's because we long to transcend our current inabilities, our shortcomings. We long to transcend that plaguing sense that we're not whole. That something just isn't right. God interwove into creation the potential for wholeness and flourishing. And he gave us humans the responsibility to cultivate that potential. God intended the world to live in perfect harmony. God's original intentions were that we would live within, we would live with perfect harmony within ourselves, emotionally and psychologically, with each other, societally and socially, that we would live in harmony with creation, ecologically, and that we would live in harmony with himself, theologically and relationally. The ancient Hebrews, they had a word that summarized this intention and this imaging of wholeness and perfection and flourishing. It was the Hebrew word shalom. Can you say that with me this morning, class? Shalom, shalom. Doesn't that just fill your mouth with peace in your heart? Shalom, it's perfect. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he is addressing what theologian Cornelius Plantinga called the vandalism of shalom. The vandalism of shalom. So Satan the evil one, our sin, and our separation from God, these things have deformed and diminished our ideas about what will bring wholeness, what will cultivate flourishing. And rather than cultivating and bringing wholeness, we have wrecked ourselves and we have wrecked our world. And our generation, particularly since the Enlightenment, but particularly this generation over the last 50 years, is uniquely aggressive in the way that we vandalize shalom. What historically and traditionally human cultures have practiced as core values, things like emotional self-control, our generation calls that suppression of the passions. Things like sexual restraint, our generation calls repressive and archaic. Things like integrity of one's word, we call unnecessary and over-the-top legalistic because, you know, everybody tells a lie once in a while, right? We are hard and cynical towards one another. So from political pundits to theological bloggers to dinner table conversations, we use what one scholar called verbal violence to rip and tear our perceived enemies, the others. We tear them apart with our words. We are, without question, in the history of all human culture, the most sexually saturated culture to have ever existed on the planet. So whether male or female, the culture we live in teaches us that the other human is an object to be exploited and used for personal pleasure. And the sick twist of irony in our culture is that some have actually misdefined that obsessive, selfish, biological drive and sensation and feeling as love. Raw, unrestrained, biological drives are actually interpreted in our culture as the beginning of, quote unquote, what love feels like but they're divorced from commitment and serving the other and sacrificed through monogamous covenant union. When it comes to truth and integrity in human relationships in this generation of humanity, a man is only as good as his word, that's a long-lost, antiquated idea that's been buried under exaggerations, white lies, loopholes, and a discarding of honesty and honor between one another. We have vandalized shalom personally and societally, and the effects of these sins are the rampant anxiety, depression, fear, insecurity, anger, aggression, and desperation that even this morning most of us are enduring in some degree. Jesus, is laying out a specific way. Jesus is laying out in the Sermon on the Mount a new way, a true way to be human, to be whole, to flourish, to restore shalom to this broken world. Jonathan Pennington, at this point, probably my favorite commentator and scholar on the Gospel of Matthew, writes, righteousness is a key idea for the whole sermon and can be defined in Matthew as whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Jesus' teachings, they are so hard to digest because he literally turns our culturally received truths and norms upside down on their heads. He says the things that we thought would make us happy unchecked emotional expression, unrestrained sexual experience, image fabrication in the name of fame and status and position and getting ahead, the things that we thought would finally bring flourishing to us, Jesus says, kiddos, that's what's making you sick. That's what's wrong with the world, is what Jesus teaches. And so the Sermon on the Mount, we need to understand this. The Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus morally policing humanity with an angry, puritanical rage. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is giving the antidote to our sickness. The Sermon on the Mount, it is a prescription for healing. These teachings what we here at Park Hill call the way of Jesus. We are practitioners of the way of Jesus in San Diego. These teachings, this way is the way back to shalom personally and back to shalom societally. And ultimately, the mystery and the glory of the Bible and its teachings is that this is the way back to shalom universally when the sons of God are raised from the graves and all creation comes to rest again. Understand this morning that through history, there have been multitudes of influential teachers and guides and coaches and counselors and gurus who have taught ways of human flourishing, but Jesus of Nazareth did so uniquely. Jesus did not say, Let me show you the way, let me give you the practices. Jesus literally said, audaciously, ludicrously, I am the way. Jesus unequivocally positioned himself as the absolute authority when he said, You've heard it said. The law has said, your gurus have said, your spiritual coaches have said, other religions have said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And in that moment, he positioned himself as the supreme moral authority over all of creation and over you and over me. So for the rest of our time, what I wanna do is just look at how Jesus addresses three things. Anger, objectification, rooted in that carnal, fleshy lust, and truth telling described by vows and oath taking. First, the outward standard on anger. There in verse 21, I'm using the New Living Translation because I think it catches in our vernacular the essence of what Jesus is saying in, in my quotes up on the screen. Verse 21 of chapter five. You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. So culturally, we absolutely love this. This is our mantra. What we say when we think about God and each other and the world is, of course, I'm not, I'm not that bad of a person. I, I haven't messed up. It's not like I've murdered somebody. And, and actually, this is super commendable. I'm super glad you haven't killed anybody. I mean, fist bump. Good job. Me too. We're all on the same team when it comes to that, right? But what Jesus does as a master teacher, a counselor, and a guide A physician getting to the sickness to give us the antidote is he goes to the source of murder. He goes deep down into the darkness of our broken souls. And he does not go deep down in there to condemn us, to point the finger at us. He goes down in there to highlight for us that within each one of us, there is a murderous inclination. That within each one of us, Resides a dangerous killer. But I say, Jesus says, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought to the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. He is so jarring. Jesus goes here to the source of what tears humans apart and destroys shalom. Namely, unchecked anger and violently destroying another image bearer, which is what the Bible describes all humans as, image bearers of God, reflectors of God. So destroying another image bearer's identity with our words, Jesus gets down into that. So when we lose it with our spouse or our kids, or that wonderful human being this morning in the red Mustang on the way to church who cut me off. When we lose it with them, we find ourselves screaming, idiot, learn how to drive, in our car, even though they can't hear us. Shalom, shalom is being torn apart right there, and understand, shalom is being torn apart. When you give yourself over to that in an unchecked way, shalom is being torn apart societally, but shalom is being torn apart in your own soul. What you were designed to be, you are not being in that moment. So when our jealousy is unchecked, and we're green with envy, as we peruse through our Instagram feed, and we don't check that envy, we are aligning ourselves with Cain, whose envy led him to kill his own brother. When we're mocking a person, or delighting in malicious gossip, Or labeling that one that we disagree with politically, religiously, theologically, when we are labeling the one that we disagree with as anything less than an honorable, valuable image bearer of God, we are literally drinking from the fountain from which murderous wars flow. Jesus said, that the words that come out of our mouths flow from our hearts. That's a Hebrew way of thinking about our core identity, the way we exist. Outside of Jesus, apart from Jesus, we are a society of vandals, spray-painting black with our words all over the beauty that God intended us to actually cultivate with words of respect and self-control and tenderness and love. This is what Jesus is addressing. I know this feels heavy. And I just have to continue to repeat it through the entirety of our time together this morning. Jesus is addressing our hearts for the sake of healing. He's like a good physician explaining the sickness to his patients. And the medicine tastes horrible at first, horrible. But as it goes down, we become aware, and then we start to incline our hearts towards truth, and we start making changes, and we realize that we're moving towards flourishing and not away from it, though the initial confrontation of our attitudes within is difficult. On adultery, sex, lust, objectification, verse 27 of Matthew 5, the outward standard set by most of society throughout history, until ours, set by the law in Jesus's day is you must not commit adultery. Pretty straightforward, pretty simple. So outwardly be faithful to your covenant unions, maritally. That's part of bringing shalom, harmony into the world. But Jesus goes further to the heart of infidelity. But I say, Jesus says, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 28 of Matthew 5. Okay, let's note something here. Jesus does not say to notice an attractive human is wrong. That's super important in a society like ours, in a guilt-ridden church. We must remember Jesus does not say to notice an attractive human being, you're gonna go to hell for that. That's just, that's ridiculous. To look with lustful intent is to see the other human as merely an object to be used for our own purposes. Lust objectifies, it takes over. Lust burns with an unchecked longing like a fire consuming a field in flames. Lustful looking, lustful intent is imagining and fantasizing in our minds and hearts, and it is an imagining and a fantasizing that dehumanizes the other for the sake of self. Jesus says that is the source of adultery. Jesus says the breaking of marital and sexual shalom starts in our hearts and minds, This is a male-female epidemic in our society. We are both confused and utterly consumed by the burning sexual exploitation that we have embraced culturally. A couple stats for you guys. And every year that I read these stats, every sermon where I go dig up these stats from whatever research journal, I'm just, I don't have words for it. Every second, every second, one, two, three, every second, $3,075 is being spent on pornography right now. And in that same second, 28,258 users are watching it, men and women. The horror of a stat like that isn't just the unimaginable volume, which I can't even get my head around, but it's the type of porn that our generation is producing. Sunday, honestly, this is not the venue to describe what's going on in the world of pornography. Suffice it to say, today's porn is increasingly degraded and violent, especially towards women. And to top it off, the primary searches that are being brought in these porn searches are for teenage girls. Objectifying lust seeks to burn innocence and we collectively as a culture have embraced that said it's archaic and repressive to reject that so we are confused about this societally we buy the erotic novels the mommy porn as it's come to be called we watch the movies we download the violent porn We fantasize and we inflame our souls as we use overtly sexual imagery to sell everything from soda pop to Chevy Silverados. Simultaneously, while we are clicking on the Amazon tabs to buy the erotic novels and download the porn, simultaneously, we're getting on Instagram standing with the victims of sexual aggression and we are outraged by it because they're crying out for help hashtagging me too. Do you see the the contradiction, the horrific juxtaposition of this and that. We can't put our finger on why college campus rapes are rising at an uncontrollable rate. We're shocked when we discover that teenage girls are actually being sold as slaves right in our backyard neighborhoods here in beautiful, sunny San Diego. We embrace collectively as a culture, a shallow hookup culture. And then we can't figure out why our inner beings feel torn and tattered and alone and depressed. I mean, literally, the tinder has been lit and we cannot swipe it away. Pun intended to lighten the mood in this place. (laughs) Guys, Mo Isom, author of Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations the Church Forgot, writes... One of the most detrimental effects of sexual overexposure is that it changes the way we think about people far more than we even realize. Humans become objects. Humans become body parts. Individuals made in the image of a holy God ultimately become things to be used rather than people to be loved, valued, and seen. And when each when we reach a place where we're capable of dehumanizing others for our own sexual fulfillment, we're not only harming others, but also draining our own souls of their vitality. Jesus is not some repressive religious guy who thinks of sex as disgusting and dangerous, beating you over the head with a Bible. Jesus created sex, and we have distorted it to our own destruction. And so what Jesus is doing is he's getting beyond the outward action of adultery into the hearts of every single one of us humans to make us aware that this sexual inclination, this confusion, this consuming fire, when we give ourselves over to it, that is what is making us sick. That is the source of our insecurity, our anxiety, our loneliness, our fear, our depression. And he's saying, let me point you to flourishing, true flourishing, Strange as it sounds in our ears, monogamy, chastity, these words that are long lost, forgotten upon our culture. On the truth and integrity in speech, the outward standard was verse 33 of Matthew chapter five. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. In other words, if you've made a vow, if you've promised to do something, do it. Do any, of you guys, do any of you guys remember when you were little kids? Did any of you guys ever do pinky swearing? Does it, just show me your hands. If anybody did, am I the, okay, good, yeah. So in elementary school, we had this neighborhood crew of dudes, bunch of little dudes, like eight, nine years old. There was like four or five of us. And we had a tree fort and we were the tree fort posse. And there was this one girl in our neighborhood. And to this day, I feel bad for her. Her name was Jesse Carpenter. And I remember sitting in the tree fort with Ryan Garf, And we put our pinkies together, and we solemnly looked each other in the eye, and we said to each other with great gravitas, I solemnly swear, I will never, ever, never let Jesse Carpenter into this tree fort. And with that pinky swear, we were bound to bar her from our tree fort posse, and she never got in. I feel horrible about it, but we were true to our word. In Jesus' day, their culture, like ours, had actually made the pinky swear and breaking the pinky swear a fine art. They had elaborate loophole systems that they had developed whereby they could swear by the gold of the altar but not the actual altar so it wasn't as binding. They could swear by the temple but not acknowledge the God represented by the temple so it wasn't as big a deal if they broke the deal. They had actually made the process of loopholing and lying and falsifying and a lack of integrity in speech and relationship a normal part of human interaction. Sounds a lot like us. And so Jesus says, let's get to the heart of this. Let's get past all of this shalom, vandalizing, lying, loopholing nonsense. But I say, verse 34, do not make any vows. Don't say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. Don't say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. Don't say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Don't even say by my head you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. So Jesus just basically, in one fell swoop, brushes aside all the false standards of promising and vowing and oath-taking and contract-making and gentlemen's handshakes and prenuptial agreements and, and pinky swearing. He says, it's all, Let's just, we don't need any of that. Because what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's seeking to move humans to a place where those things aren't needed where we are so integrous in our speech and in our word from the heart, where if we say yes, we do it, and if we say no, we don't do it. What Jesus is encouraging and exhorting us and commanding us to do is not divide ourselves with false outward promises, but actually not have an inward commitment. So if I promise my wife, babe, I... I promise you, I will be home. I know you've got a busy schedule today. I will be home at 9 a.m. from my surf session. But you know, the waves are so good, and I've got the break to myself, and ah, That's never happened. (laughs) The reality is, when we make a promise, when we say we're going to do something, I'm going to be here on time. I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to fulfill my commitment. Jesus says, speak and behave as a whole person human, that is in accord with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. And so when God says something, he does it. So we as followers of him say something and we do it. And now that brings us here to the most shocking and disorienting things that in my opinion, Jesus of Nazareth ever ever talked about in any of his teachings. He issues these hardcore heavy warnings And we hate these things. I hate reading these things. Culturally, we just, oh, it's so abrasive in our ears. Jesus just full on uses words like judgment and hell. And he acknowledges the evil one, some satanic, some literal personal entity, an evil one. So Jesus warns that the human who goes on in unchecked, unforgiving and unforgiven anger, that human is already liable to the judgment. As much as we judge in our anger, you're a terrible driver, idiot, we are sitting now being judged by that judgment in our anger and rage, and we are liable to the fire of hell. Jesus says if you engage in the long, imaginative glance without restraint, or if you've given yourself over to typing in the porn site and continually searching for just one more, one more, he says, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Jesus says that that little white lie, that's not a big deal, that promise to do something and then not doing it, he says that is evil, it's in line with the father of lies, Satan, the evil one. So what's going on here? We culturally say, look, it's just an impatience problem. My dad had an anger problem. There's nothing I can do about it. We societally, we say, it's just a glance. It's in my private house. I'm not hurting anybody. It's just a little white lie, a little exaggeration, a little fabrication, no harm done. Why is Jesus making this such a huge deal? Why such hard warnings and strong reactions? the answer requires us to think biblically about our souls, the afterlife, and our present behavior. So track closely and we'll wrap this up. Understand something this morning. The Bible teaches that today, right now in this moment, through your decisions, beliefs, attitudes, and actions, you are currently, presently embodying and moving towards what you will be after death. Here, today, now. Hell This is going to be hard for some of us to imagine, but hell is not a pit of fire where you're tossed into it after you die. And heaven is most certainly not white clouds and white gowns and little naked babies with wings floating around and you strumming on a harp for eternity. That would be terrible, by the way. That would be awful. (laughs) All that stuff is leftover folk theology from periods long before us. It's a far cry from what Jesus is getting at when he talks about hell and the fires thereof. What he's saying is today in this present moment, you are either, with your actions, your decisions today, you are either deforming and destroying the wholeness and the fullness and the shalom and the humanness that God intended by your decisions, or by your decisions and actions, you are presently forming and cultivating wholeness and fullness and shalom and humanness by your internal decisions and your external actions. We are all embodying hell on earth or heaven on earth. Today, right here in this space, we are all embodying hell on earth or heaven on earth right now in this moment. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it's a template of sorts. And it's actually intended to empower humans to embody heaven on earth and to help other humans escape the hell on earth that we have brought upon ourselves. And that is why Jesus is making such a huge deal out of what we consider insignificant things. When unchecked anger and calling someone an idiot goes without conviction, we don't recognize where we are in that space, that is the beginning of the burning destructive forces of hell being unleashed in our soul presently and in the world. And that's why Jesus says, you're already liable, you're already in the dangers of the fires of hell, because that burning anger is the burning fire. You'll be given over to that. The anger and the name calling is the match that lights that destroying fire. When Jesus says, pluck out your eye and cut off your hand, he is saying, judge yourself here in, in the body presently. He's saying, He's saying, do whatever it takes to cultivate and form patterns of heaven and shalom in your heart when it comes to sex and your soul. Practically, when he says, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, let's just put that in today's vernacular. He's saying, get rid of Instagram. He's saying, trash your erotic novels. He's saying, get a flip phone. He's saying, don't use a computer unless you're in a public space. Jesus is saying... Put effort into doing what it takes to embody heaven on earth for your own soul and for the sake of those being objectified and objectifying today. Justifying not following through on what we say and little white lies and the false Instagram imagery that we use to get ahead in life, that is sourced in the father of lies, the evil one. And that actually progresses Satan's kingdom and not the true king's kingdom. And so undivided, committed follow-through even if it costs us something for ourselves, saying yes and doing it and saying no and not doing it, that is the embodiment of shalom and the kingdom of heaven on earth. And so Jesus is making all these things a huge deal because what he's doing with us, key in on this and take this home today and meditate on it. Jesus is forming in us through the Sermon on the Mount a counterculture society that embodies his will on earth. That's us, the church. And the healing of our personal souls and the healing of humans and ultimately the healing of the universe is fulfilled in part through our obedience. That's weighty. So how do we do this? As we close and prepare to come to the tables. Do we just grit our teeth and grind it out? Do we just focus super hard and transform our hearts just by sheer willpower? I think, I think if you've been a Christian for like more than a week is what I have in my notes. If you've been, if you've been a Christian for more than an hour, <laughs> you recognize that willpower and sheer focus and force of ability is just a recipe for depression. This is not about us by willpower obeying a set of rules This is about living out of our core identity focused on Jesus as his apprentices and his Holy Spirit empowering us as his apprentices and living in grace, living in grace. Track with me carefully. The multifaceted beauty and power of the gospel, it restores shalom in all of our brokenness every single moment, every moment, every bit of our brokenness. You can be having wrapped up looking at porn and turn to Jesus Beg forgiveness and shalom is restored in that instant. You can lose it with your wife on the way to the gathering or on the way home from the gathering and look to Jesus in that moment and his grace ushers in shalom in that moment. It is where we are turned towards in our trajectories. Jesus is offering healing to all of us every second of our lives. For every second that somebody is watching porn right now, every second someone in this room can be healed by the grace and the goodness of Jesus Christ. You guys can clap. I I think that was good. Let's walk through this and we'll come to the tables. Some of us in here have become fatalistic and we've given up. What I mean is you've gone the willpower route to overcome anger, lust. You exaggerate constantly and you know you do and you've just given up because you failed so many times. So you've given yourself over to that. I resonate with this. Uh, If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, a relatively healthy eight on the Enneagram. And I've tried to explain to people that what that feels like being an eight is like you're like a volcano being held down by a paper napkin. That's what I feel like. all the time, my default core vice is lust. I cannot tell you how discouraged in 20 years of walking with Jesus, how broken and discouraged I've become sometimes, how frustrated I have become. Just utterly frustrated, saying I'm so sorry to my kids, to my wife, to my friends, to my church, I'm sorry. It's a volcano. It's a paper napkin. And I've wanted to just give myself over to that. But today Jesus says to me and to those of you in that same space, he says, I love you. I love you. I love you. I haven't abandoned you. I won't abandon you. I'm with you in your desperation, in your frustration, in your bitterness. And Jesus is telling us you have to let that grace and that gospel truth inspire you again. You're not a lost cause because Jesus' unconditional love for you never stops. My counselor told me this and it really irritated me, but he said, Dan, you gotta learn to be gentle with yourself. What? Be gentle, be kind to yourself, be tender with yourself because that is what Jesus is doing with you. Move in that grace. Some of us in this room, you have yet to actually experience the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Look to Jesus. He is our exemplar, Christus' exemplar. He is the example to follow. As a human, Jesus endured the temptations of the devil himself in the wilderness. And how did he do it? by saturating himself in the scriptures and by depending on the Holy Spirit. And so he laid out for us the strategy, the pathway to overcoming these temptations and these moments of failure by soaking ourselves in the scripture, by depending on the Holy Spirit just as he did. And some will say right now, but what if I fail again and again? What if I fail again and I fail again and I fail again? Jesus did not fail for you, for you. He did not fail ever, and he did that for you. His life was in our place. He didn't fail, and our faith in him gives us his victory, his righteousness, his wholeness. His perfections are ours entirely. So when we fail, we believe that, and in him, this is who we are. We now live out of that in the depths of our hearts. Some in this room this morning are so guilt-ridden, So overcome with shame that you can barely lift your eyes right now. You feel dirty and filthy and condemned. You have to look to Jesus, loved one. All the dirtiness, all the anger, all the lies were absorbed by Jesus on the cross. He was stripped naked and shamed for the pornographer and the porn addicted. He was accused and condemned as a liar, though he was innocent for every exaggeration, white lie, and loophole that we've created. He was made sin so that we would be made innocent. Receive that grace and forgiveness today as an act of surrender and faith. And for you who are new to the Bible, this is Jesus' love for you. You don't need to clean up. You don't need to work harder. You don't need to get better. You can stop your search. Jesus is meeting you right where you are. And he's forgiving you and accepting you. And then finally, to overcome these temptations and these behaviors and turn our inward inclinations unto the direction of shalom, we've got to remember that we have Jesus as our resurrected hope. Though the battle be long and we must fight the good fight of faith until the day we die and we will fail, Jesus assures us of a great resurrection into fullness of shalom. Just as he rose from the darkness of death, we will rise too with bodies of righteousness and love each other and him in perfection for all eternity. Let's close with this. Listen to the words of Ellen Blass that we opened up with one more time. There's a part of every living thing that wants to become itself. The tadpole into the frog, the chrysalis into the butterfly, damaged humans into whole ones. Come this morning. Come broken and beat down, tired and worn out, guilty and shamed, and be made whole by a love so divine and so beyond our comprehension. Come be made perfect. Come be made whole. Come be made truly human. Come and live into shalom forever.